Welcome to Thug Crowd Radio. Please listen to this important disclaimer in its entirety. All participants of this Thug Crowd Radio episode are characters. None of the stories told during these episodes are based on facts, truth, or reality. All works of fiction displayed during this episode that resemble real-life situations are coincidental and are not meant to serve as guides or tutorials to commit any crimes in any country. Please consult an attorney for local laws and regulations. And as always, trust your inner criminal. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the crowd. Hey. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi. What's up? Another day in paradise. <laughs> oh, hello. All right. Hey, so we have a bunch of stuff to talk about today. Uh, do you guys want to introduce ourselves? Something from the top there? Dean, or actually, is that oh, the correct one? Huh? I was going to say, is Meterpreter there? Is he, uh... Oh, Meterpreter is actually the uh, listener for the whole podcast. We had a bunch of, or I personally had a lot of audio issues, and now I have a dedicated machine for streaming, and that is Meterpreter um, up there. Well then, I guess that's my interpreter introduced. So uh, I'm dead Mufasa. Um, I'm up in the clouds looking down on you and I'm a fucking lion. <laughs> What's up, Jonathan? Are you there? Not sure if he's there. Hi, hello. Uh, hi, guys. I'm welcome. <laughs> And Faith, I feel like a lot of people aren't listening right now. Yeah, this is Faith. What's up? Hey there. Hi. I'm Shell. Beautiful. And Freck came in, but hello. I am lurking. My name is Freck. How you doing? Hi. Alrighty. So I'm gonna uh, get right into it here, and I'll throw this into our. Um. No, John. You're not here. Um, so yeah, um, <clears throat> we have news today. We also are going to cover um, the topic, broad topic, loud. All right, can you hear me oh. now? Yes, hi, Jonathan. All right, chill. Nice. Yeah, I'll just mute because you can barely hear my air conditioning. Beautiful. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, my audio just went crazy too again. Um, so yeah, I'm also. Um, <clears throat> so yes, yeah, so today we're going to be talking about cloud security. Uh, what it is, what are the challenges, what are the big fails, and how can our existing knowledge right now, what we know about the cloud and all of its lovely, lovely features, um, how can we actually make cloud more secure going forward? 
So that'll be in the second hour of the show. So we can get right into the news, guys. Um, one second. Did you guys see the article about IBM banning all removable storage for all um, staff everywhere? Good. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say MG might be a little upset about that, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's I, pretty rare when you see that that an organization has a policy. I've only ever seen that in in my military and defense, and maybe some major banks. But IBM's bigger, so that's interesting. Yeah, so definitely. It's funny, Faith. Faith, you can probably talk more on this than me, but um, so even though I, I know that with uh, like military and government, when they have uh, USB, for example, disabled. The actual port is physically powered still. That's is that your experience? Yeah, it's um, often often uh, they'll just use like group policy in Windows and and maybe whitelist some some vendor IDs for for certain keyboards and mice that they absolutely must use. But um, yeah, they rarely do they actually physically remove ports or power them down at all. Um, and if it's in group policy, then you know that's at that's at Windows level, not hardware level. So, oh, that's good. So MG can still make shit explode. That's cool. <laughs> that is all that matters. Yep. Yeah, I mean it, it's pretty crazy though. I mean, removable storage. Another thing that I always think about with this too is just people's phones. I know that like people don't think about it as much. I mean, maybe people in our sort of field do, but um, you know, there's been tons of of stuff that happens because people plug their their smartphone into a work computer and don't realize it because they just want to charge their phone and they you know end up unleashing some havoc on their network it was interesting that's like uh like otg like usb otg as well on most devices now and um i think like we talked about game hacking last week and i forgot to bring up that uh there was like a, a firmware attack on the playstation 4's usb port it was actually in the USB stack that um, you'd, you'd connect a, uh, a USB OTG device and then that like you'd run some app and it would do the USBs and exploit uh, something in the USB controller or in the, the device driver more likely with um, within like BSD. So that it's like, that's where smartphones come into like a whole new thing. It's not just a, a client device anymore. It could, it could do both. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's definitely a good policy, but it's also kind of, you know, wild that it's an entire, you know, company's um, policy. Like, nobody anywhere can bring any removable storage in. So it kind of just, you know, for people, I guess, maybe who are maybe older or not used to that, like, I don't know, it seems like a lot. But it makes sense. It seems like the next iteration of, um, do you remember when, um, like, Windows would, load the image from the desktop INI of the uh, like a CD or USB stick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then there was like the PNG exploits and stuff like in Windows 7 where you just plug the device in and Windows Explorer gets like owned like. <laughs> yeah, we've had um, a lot of uh, years ago we had um, governments and, and big organizations get rid of removable media from like CD and DVD um, because of the auto run stuff that was too hard to deal with. I wonder what the driver behind this is. Like, did IBM get owned big time or did their pen testing team finally get some clout or what's the driver? That's what I was thinking. Because that's like a big move to make, right? Like, that's not like a small policy change. Yeah, it says to prevent leaks. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like, 
we have DLP um, products out there and, and consulting companies that that you know, that focus entirely on on um, detecting data leaving the organization over the network, and they link in with like BYOD policy and stuff. Um, but we re- we rarely see like like no flash drives. Like that's that's just um, so across a whole yeah. organization. That's pretty. It's pretty. I don't think it's enforceable. First of all, by IBM, it's way too big. But we'll see. So IBM, I know with like a lot of other uh, large organizations, even though they're a technology company, they outsource uh, desktop support to places like Fujitsu and um, EDS and other companies. Do IBM do their own internal desktop shit or do they just, are they like everybody else? Does anyone know? Both. Like they'd have corporate where they do their own stuff and then uh, various sites where they've got their fingers involved in some way or another where where Dell or HP or somebody else entirely is, you know, white pro Indians or something will be, would be doing all the desktop support. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Like, um, how, yeah. Enforcing that across those multiple organizations. And then again, you've got to think that IBM also have internal security and external security sort of consulting. So, um, like there's, there's obviously going to be no crosstalk between those departments either, which is funny. So how did it get to this? Well, from reading the wide article, it seems that um, they asked the question, you know, what's driving IBM to, to impose this? Apparently, it's quantum computing. Um, they've got a big grant from, from it's basically, it comes back to military. It comes back to defense. Um, they've got a research grant. And, uh, and now they've got to apply, I guess, the same sort of security policies that um, Department of Defense would apply to prevent, you know, air gap hopping nation state type Stuxnet style stealing of their secrets. I believe some bases in the States as well have like beyond group policy, like a separate uh, thing that doesn't allow uh, external storage is something else I've heard in the past as well. Yeah, a lot of endpoint security stuff will, will can take over that management of, of that stuff, you know, like McAfee and Symantec and stuff. They have endpoint protection and that, that covers removable media. Just tweet John McAfee and ask him how to get around it and watch him get pissed off. <laughs> yeah. He'll tell you he knows some really smart guys in uh, in Miami. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, I'm really excited about this next story here um, because it's kind of the ongoing saga of this guy who got his friend out of prison, um, basically like social engineering, spear fishing, and getting his friend released from jail it's like straight up like movie shit but he himself got caught and is now going to be serving seven years and three months and three years supervised release for hacking the computer system of a county prison and modifying prison records mr robot literally (laughs) yeah he downloaded cali uh no it's like honestly i think this is pretty badass it sucks that he got caught i guess i don't, I don't know i mean it, it makes sense that he got caught because you know if you're if it's directly benefiting your friend you know it's kind of like you're going to be one of the few people that isn't be a suspect for it it's not some random thing that released all the prisoners you know so literally like this guy he literally should have just listened to the stuff we've talked about on upsec because he <laughs> had done like it seems like from the articles it's like oh he tried like spearfishing he tried this he tried that and they're all like 
from his fucking house type deal, you know? Yeah. No, he said that he, he got people to uh, install a fake update for the county's jail app, which is just... <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so is this, uh, this is called X-Jail. And, uh, yeah, they it was it could basically just a, a fucking rootkit and just, yeah, they got it going. And he was able to steal a bunch of other data from about uh, county jail employees and, like, look at all the in- internal records. But it's funny that he was able to do that and only benefit one single person out of it, too, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, there was very little foresight in that. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty fucking cool, though. Like it was pretty slick, you gotta admit. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I think life. he was probably surprised that it worked, and he's like, "Holy shit! I I didn't expect those guys to click that." And holy shit, I didn't realize that this this would connect back to my C two server. And he probably like he got really lucky. Um, if it was like a a state or a federal um complex, I don't think he'd have as much luck. But it's just a county jail, so um. He's dealing with, with dumb cops, I guess, getting them to click stuff. SQL Server 2000. Uh, yeah, this is, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty cool story. So hopefully, I don't know, maybe he gets freed too by some APT or something. Um, I feel like he's just kind of like a dude who was like really smart in one sense, but really dumb in another. I mean, yeah. like a lot of things, he's blinded by his you know, emotional attachment to the issue. Wow, I just saw a picture of the guy. It looks exactly like Oshok. <laughs> the Russian Oshok. Hell oh, yeah. Uh, so the next one uh, on our list here is, do you guys hear about Amazon's smart, uh, or the Neighborhood Watch app, or the Neighbor app, that allows um, basically people who use Ring to share footage of suspicious activity? But it's, yeah. Well, did anybody read that article? Yeah, I read that. And then I also read that Amazon, like Ring, if you change your password, it wasn't signing people out who were logged in using the old password. It wasn't like clearing the sessions. Really? Yeah. And cool. so, the best. Sorry, continue. Oh, um, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say so, you know, obviously you get the, oh, I broke up with my boyfriend and he's still logged into my. Uh, <laughs> into my doorbell oh my god I, I think the best ring hack that i've seen so far is somebody just went up to the house and stole the fucking whole thing they just like pulled it off the <laughs> it's like screwed to the door and they just took the whole thing and were like yeah sweet fuck robbing the house i stole the ring <laughs> sell that shit in the black market yeah go hock it at the local fucking pawn shop you know uh look i got a buddy who's uh He's an expert in this kind of shit. I'm going to have to give him a call. Dude, I had that happen with my ex. She still had access to my ADT security. So literally every time I left the house or came to the house, she was still getting text messages for a long time. Creepy stuff. Yeah, no, and the other thing that's that's interesting that this brings up is the fact that um, the police are able to just, you know, get access to this kind of stuff, or they're going to be able to get access to doorbell cameras. So they just basically by using Ring and having it pointing out to the street, you're just you know giving access to the police to have more and more security cameras on everybody. And yeah, like also it's like warrantless. Getting... They can walk into your fucking house anytime they want. 
Yeah, if the cops like tried to incentivize people to install a remotely monitored CCTV camera outside their every single person's home, I don't think we'd put up with it. But if you if you add some incentive like this will make your Amazon life easier, people just give away their their privacy and freedom immediately. Yeah, I think that you have to remember that not every ring is going to be pointing out onto a public property uh, onto public. Yeah, public property like it's not going to hit the road like there's people who live in in larger blocks that the only thing the ring will see is their, their private property even though it's at their front door like it's not going so if law enforcement have access to that you know like that's that's on your property there is nothing public that they you know they shouldn't have that so whatever it's probably a bad idea yeah, I mean, it's just people install like purchasing and installing CCTV cameras like for the government at that point. Like China did it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the UK actually is is largely covered. I think is it? Uh, I can't remember what city is it. Maybe somewhere in Wales that is like the most, or is it London? That's the most. Yeah, CCTV. it's London. Right. Yeah. 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 So like, I think uh, that's a case where people really didn't have backlash against it or if they did it wasn't heard because it's there yeah i think it's a lot easier to object when you hear about something about to be rolled out and then you say oh it, they're already there uh can't do anything about it now yeah the policy was made three years ago good luck so yeah, I'm, I'm interested to go back and see if it was like if they rolled them out without much public knowledge or if you know how that went because i can only imagine like the outcry there would be if you know there's an announcement that the government was going to roll out how many thousand cameras so bfrax mentioned in chat on twitch as well that um it will see the house across the street like so that might see in their windows or whatever you see when people come and people when, when people go as well that way yeah no i mean it just it adds to just the ability the different angles i mean you can even even if something's not 100% pointed at the street, you know, let's say it, it grabs just like the bottom of a car, you know, you'll still be able to enumerate quite a bit from that kind of information just 24 seven out there on the street. Yeah. yeah, when people go to work, when they like, you know, when cars drive past, so the guy who lives seven doors down and you can't see, he still drives past your house every day, right? Yep. No, it's, it's just, adding more to the, the way to have all the uh, dots point back to you for whatever reason. But yeah, um, uh, the next article that I have listed here is uh, about the World of Warcraft player sentenced to jail for DDoS attacks against Blizzard. Um, but the interesting thing about this was that he's like a, just a Romanian guy and he got sentenced by the US, uh, like the United States, which is just like, I don't know, I've, I haven't really heard too much of that. <laughs> For people getting, you know, DDoSing. You got extradited for a DDoS attack. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. And not, not even a good Jeez. DDoS attack. Like, just like ICMP floods or like, you know, open port 80 lol, put fucking traffic. So yeah. Well, it's like not technically, um, not technically impressive. The impressive thing is that they like bothered to go after him. They went after like how much damages they went for, like, I don't know, do we have a figure of how much damages they actually went for? Um, hold on, it was I'm trying to look at what the number is here. Twenty-nine thousand 
or uh, $30,000. So he was extradited to the US over $30,000 from a massive company like Blizzard Activision obviously makes, you know, a lot of money. Um, I don't have those figures, but I'm sure it's in the hundreds of millions. Um, and it happened in 2010 as well. So like they pursued it for that long um, to get the extradition done. Like, you know, that's pretty relentless. I think Blizzard wants to make an example of just people trying to fuck with it in general. Um, I think uh, they were trying to sue people who were developing cheats a while back. Or I think that was Evolve or something. But yeah, yeah like they a lot did. of these companies, they're definitely cracking down on people trying to reverse engineer or try and create cheats for their shit. Blizzard aside, this is, a, this is a government thing too. I mean, there's a, you don't just extradite someone for a DDoS attack. The government is likely wanting to make examples here too. Yeah, I mean, it's really... So we're going to say, Faith? I was just putting it in perspective. It's 20000 $20, odd dollars of fines that he has to pay. But for a Romanian, that's like uh, above the average yearly income for a Romanian. Yeah, that sucks. Um, hold on. So the next thing I have on the list here, that was really weird. Kind of, you know, um, did you guys hear about Stalin Locker? Yeah, we were laughing about that earlier. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'll post it in the Twitch chat here. Um, and um, um, Muse IFU666, yes, we're going to talk about um, AWS and cloud stuff is later on um, in, at 10.30, so like half an hour, we're going to get into the cloud security. Um, so, okay. Later on? Later on is in like in 38 minutes or so, once we get through the, the news. Um, so, yeah, the this thing is really weird. It's basically like a, like a joke. It's like a prank of ransomware that um, it just basically locks your screen and tracks the current date and then of the or the current the time that the program was executed and the date of uh December thirtieth, nineteen twenty two. And you have ten minutes to put the correct code in or else it'll just delete it. And all all the while it just has Stalin like just like like a deep fried meme Stalin like with like the you know flashing eyes and a bunch of Russian shit and um, music playing with like a just ominous countdown. I don't know. Russian, I, anthem. <laughs> Russian anthem. Yeah, yeah. yeah seems like this seems like meme, some kind of meme-related comedy thing. Not, not actual Russians. This is a joke. I mean, it's, yeah. it's dangerous, but like it says, uh, the code that you need to enter is derived from subtracting the current date of when the program is executed by the date, thirtieth uh, of December, nineteen twenty-two, which is the the date that the Russian Federation was founded by Stalin. So. Um, <laughs> This is this clearly like there's so many there's so many um, 4chan kind of indicators all over this. Yeah, this is an advanced meme, guys. <laughs> Very advanced. It's just destructive. Like, just delete your files randomly. It doesn't. There's no ransom. There's no. <laughs> but the, you yeah. know what's funny as well is that it's it's like so. Um, if you can't figure out this basic math problem, fuck your computer. <laughs> you don't deserve it. <laughs> I just turn your computer off. If you see it, turn your computer off immediately. Power switch on the power supply. 
you know, kind yeah. of goes back to the old school virus days, like the, uh, I can't even remember, like some of the Dark Avenger kind of viruses in the 80s that that just caused destruction. They spread, and then on a certain day, like a logic bomb would go off and just wipe the seed right. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, it's funny though, but like you, the malware hunter teams, people who reverse engineered this one, it looks like, and like I don't, I don't think that you know that that's the terms and conditions of actually like unless you unless it says it in Russian, I, I can't read Russian, but it <laughs> so the average person wouldn't know that that's how you actually solve the problem, which is crazy. Yeah, there's also. Uh, there's also a ransomware that came out, uh, I think, last year that you had to play in some kind of fucking anime game in order to unlock it. And that was pretty <laughs> funny. I think it's funny that it, it, it intentionally doesn't terminate Skype or Discord processes. So they can hear you. Like when you get infected by this, they can hear you continue to <laughs> complain about what's going on. Like, what the hell? The USSR anthem's playing, my screen's locked, Stalin with glowing <laughs> eyes. What the fuck is this? <laughs> what is this? Help! Help! Somebody help! Yeah, what nice memes? I mean, probably some fucked up like Twitch stream somewhere of just that audio. Um, yeah. So the next one is hilarious to me, and it probably wouldn't even make that big of a deal. But um, there's a new update for uh, in Adobe stuff that fixes 47 CVEs at once. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a bit at one time. So there's uh, CV, there's there's vulnerabilities in Reader, Acrobat, Photoshop, and a bunch of other stuff. And it, yeah, it, I can't just 47 CVEs, just a lot. So interestingly, it says that uh, of the 47, 13 are used after freeze, and 19 um, were out of bound reads. And it's pretty easy to like. To get a CVE, you don't really need a super critical bug or anything. You can have like a really shit bug and still get a CVE. So 47 of them, you're kind of like, ah, okay, whatever. But then when you look at what they are, it's like, well, Adobe needs to either learn how to code or like get a new compiler because something bad and, you know, they fucked up again. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, a lot of this is like you could attribute to like feature creep too because how many things in like Reader are there that absolutely have no reason to be there? Oh, dude, like, there's things in there to, like, render certain CAD files and stuff in, like, a PDF. Like, why? Yeah. It's absolutely insane. It's, like, readers should never be, like, it's probably, what, like, 100 megs? Like, actually, what? Like, you read PDF files. <laughs> At the same time, like, um, op like what, what are those, like, uh, the e is it events? I don't know. The, the open yeah, events. Ones. Yeah, it's, like, they're not much better. Like... They're just trying to keep up with the features that PDFs are included with. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Evens is pretty shit. I mean, it can't. It can't. It can't do a lot of stuff. But I'd rather have that than Adobe Acrobat Reader, or the fuck that is called. And you can open the other the file formats with Adobe stuff as well, like cross. Like you can open PDFs with like Photoshop, for example, right? Or Illustrator mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. So I mean, they obviously have libraries um, for handling the file formats, which I guess would be the underlying sort of commonality between their applications. But whether I think it would probably come down to like the same CVE if um, Adobe were to disclose that to like MITRE or whoever assigned it, whoever the CNA was. So, um, but if it was just like a researcher saying like, "Look, I did." 
this and this and this, like those, like five of those CVs might be the same line of code. Just yeah. different vectors. Still funny. Um, so I was reading a bunch more about this today, or about about this today, um, about the spy operation uh, for Julian Assange. Do you guys have any opinions on this? Because I was trying to understand like what the story actually was. Mad fucking props to the Ecuadorian government. Um, what? <laughs> Here, I'll post that in our, our chat, too. Um, but yeah, it just... Yeah, I actually, I, I had started reading us on the train, and then I didn't have service, and I didn't finish reading the article. Uh, Are we talking about the CIA guy that the, is being charged for the Vault 7 releases? Uh, no, 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 not that one. That's this is so actually I forgot to put that one on there too. Crap. Um, no, so basically, uh, Ecuador put five million into a secret intelligence budget budget that protected the WikiLeaks founder um, while he had visits from various people. Oh um, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. And they found a microphone behind the ambassador's wall outlet or something like that. Yeah, they were spying on a London agent there, London embassy, and also, uh, yeah, I was hoping um not Dan would be here to talk about the. He was tweeting about um, him like hacking their Wi-Fi and internal network and stuff, but I wasn't sure the full details of that either. Um, like I don't know, like the, the whole, you know, giving him asylum and stuff. I don't know. It, it's a, it's really, it's really gray. Um, just everything about Assange's position in WikiLeaks. Um, and I guess I don't know. Is the did we have the PGP stuff on the list to talk about? Yeah, that was the fail of the week. Well, we'll talk about that later. But um, but yeah, I mean, like this is obviously not the only thing that they're doing to try and uh, you know, find dirt on Assange or whatever. Like, so it seems pretty internationally illegal. Like, at least you know, like to to spy on someone else's embassy directly, and to get caught doing it as well, you know. Yeah, no, it just was interesting to, to add to this whole saga. But there's also a lot of weirdo news, which is annoying because, like, you see, like, a lot of the really irreputable sources that just, like, are now talking about Julian Assange that spread dis disinformation. So it's kind of hard sometimes to get a, a clear picture of what's actually going on. And I guess this kind of helps a little bit. It's also fair to mention. There's been no rebuttal about that yet, so it's really hard to know. There was actually a conspiracy theory I saw a while back is that like Julian Assange has actually been killed by a British like intelligence or whatever. And all the videos of him like in the past couple of months or the past year are basically fake or CGI. And they had that because like people were coming up with that because like when he was talking in those videos, like it didn't really match up with his voice. Like it was slightly, slightly off. Oh, yeah. Then there's this mom who talks to him or has been talking to him. So, I mean, that's yeah. probably not very true. Well, there have yeah, also I mean, been some, um, like, interesting tweets that have come out, right, that people are thinking are, like, a dead man, like, thought might have been a dead man switch or something. There actually was one. That, that Media Ops B was a dead man switch, which would be interesting because in a situation right now, you think that they would be dropping the crypto key for that Media Ops B. You guys yeah, remember I mean, that? WikiLeaks kind of does the stuff all the time. Um, they'll they tweet hashes of like uh, important documents or stuff just to like you know 
show like uh like the cia or whatever like yo we actually have this file like aren't don't they do that a lot yeah they have done that previously um but did you guys see like there's uh some chinese researchers who did work using um only the audio to make like so they took a whole bunch of obama shit uh all these speeches and then they chopped up the audio um and then were using like uh ai to create like similar to deep fakes but just using audio on a bunch of videos to make him like say the speech yeah i've seen that yeah it, it didn't look totally like wasn't a hundred percent, but I mean, yeah, there's technology out there that could fake it. Well, I, I don't think he's dead, but you know, that's my opinion. There's like yeah. a bunch of stuff with, um, well, I don't want to get too deep into conspiracy stuff, but I don't know if you guys remember, um, the whole like pod and Claire.com thing that the, it was like a bunch of stuff that was tied to like Hillary Clinton. And it was basically like a fake dating site that was created, like a whole like shell dating site that used it listed a bunch of like random girls from like Instagram and other dating sites, like profile pictures and try to create these like really weird dating profiles. But then they also said that they are, um, had ties to the UN, like the dating site had ties to the UN and had created this giant tool to predict like sexual assault before it happened and all this crazy stuff. But apparently they wanted Julian Assange to be in a, a commercial for them. And um, they had sent all these letters out. It was on WikiLeaks and stuff. And they wanted him to record like this ridiculously long like like speech into the camera. And there people were saying that they could have used that sort of thing to grab all of like the syllables and like diphthongs that you need to create like a um, like a, a a voice that would be generated like automatically through like text to speech software um, to fake his voice. So it's like a bunch of crazy shit. I don't know. What the fuck. Yeah, I don't want to get too deep into it, so I'll send you guys more information about it after. But was... By the way, guys, Bush did 9-11. Yeah, <laughs> Have you ever noticed his eyes blinking? Even if they were to do that, there's a yeah, particular exactly. eye blinking Only pattern. lizards do that. Only lizards do that. He's, he's spelling it at 666 with his eyes. Yeah, the so, words, the words wouldn't match up. my password. Verify me. Exactly. Though, like, like, so Julian Assange is this like, figure that I've seen blow up in the news or whatever and um wikileaks sort of like blew up but like right before uh it blew up i was supposed to give a presentation at an event at a, a university here and assange showed up that night and he gave a presentation first so like we got a bigger auditorium all this shit it was um when he was doing the collateral murder sort of thing the apache helicopter footage and um he showed up and I like totally chickened out. I was like, holy shit, there's like a billion people here and I've never given a presentation before. Like, fuck this. And um, <laughs> that's a cool story. Yeah, but I, when, I, when I fucking met, like I met him and what I got, like what I, what I took away from the short interaction that I had with him was that he was very charismatic and he was pushing his own, like really strongly pushing his side of the st story and agenda and he didn't feel like the story he was telling was from the neutral perspective. This is what happened. Like it felt very much. So when he was pushing collateral murder, he was definitely pushing a one-sided story. Now it was a terrible thing. I know that like, you know, some people died in that and all whatever, but just, just as a, as a person, it, it seemed like he was, you know, extremely driven um, to get his side. Yeah, that's just what I took away from it. Yeah. I'm surprised. I mean,
he he does he did found like you know what is considered to be a rival intelligence agency that releases documents of like governments. Yeah. Have you seen it? Have you ever seen the movie, by the way, the underground movie? Yeah. It's fucking terrible. <laughs> um. There's, hey. There's oh. Well, if anyone wants to actually, there's a book that's a bit better, but I believe I don't know. There's another movie about him too that was released not so long ago. There's the underground one which they filmed, and then there's one where a person was interviewing him. I forget what that one's called. Um covered his his life a little bit better recently since WikiLeaks. But the other one was the story of Mendax. Yeah, prof. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the deep state and lizard people, um, <clears throat> there is this next story that I thought was kind of weird. Um, so John Bolton um, in the U.S., he eliminated the White House cybersecurity coordinator. So uh, there's the a- Russians. Huh? It's the Russians at it again. <laughs> Back at it again. Uh, yeah, so this is really weird. I don't know. It just seems strange that they would take away the, the top person who would deal with cybersecurity issues um, and just get rid of that position after the other guy, what was the name? Um, Schneider? Oh, uh, the CIA director? Yeah, no, 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 no. I had another thing open up, but the. Oh, cybersecurity czar Tom Bosert. Yes, yes. So basically, they're just not going to have this position anymore. Um, I don't know. It just seems weird that they would just get rid of someone like that, especially for somebody like uh, John Bolton with trying to get involved in a bunch of foreign stuff. Like, you kind of need policy. It's a bit of a bullshit role anyway, though, really, right? Like... I mean, a lot of those roles are fucking bullshit. They're just titles. Yeah, I mean, so what are they supposed to coordinate? Like, just policy that like is relating to... Like, well, so it says that the, the move follows the departure of former coordinator Rob Joyce. Friday, he had a um, done a bunch of cybersecurity policy stuff and helped shed light on a secretive government disclosure framework known as the Vulnerabilities Equities Process. So, I don't know. It just seems interesting to me that that would be the position that we would take. I don't know. John Bolton is, um, was like one of the architects of the George W. Bush um, invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. He's considered like a, a hawk, a war hawk in the near yeah. circles. So it could I be read. that he's got, he's got old school like anti-commie hatred and uh, he just considers cybersecurity to be the realm of, of Russians. And he, he wants to get rid of it and go for traditional warfare. Um, but maybe <laughs> yeah, he's just reading too much. In, reading way too much into it. And nuclear he, warfare. He has a yeah. burner for Iran. He's always wanted to war up Iran. Yeah, and, and strangely enough, the, the most successful um, operations in Iran in the last decade have been cybersecurity operations. So I don't know yeah, why exactly. he wouldn't be behind it. It's also, pretty interesting to see, though, how. Uh, Rob Joyce was actually a previous member of uh, the NSA's APT. That's pretty interesting. I, I don't like he he could be targeted after leaving. I, don't know. I mean, maybe he's gonna find his body like at the bottom of the river or something. Who knows? 
But yeah, I don't know. I just thought it'd be interesting to bring up because there's, you know, obviously there's a lot of big bullshit positions that are bureaucratic, but just knowing that the people who do end up in those positions typically would come from that sort of background, you know, it is pretty useful for, you know, telling the president about the cybers and telling them what to do because, you know, clearly a lot of those people wouldn't know. Um, so yeah, there's another one, uh, this CVE, I wanted, you brought it up, um, the, um, the one, the DHCP client script codex. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? All right. So this is a currently ongoing vulnerability, um, that is affecting Red Hat and Red Hat derivatives. Um, so I guess AWS, Linux, CentOS, all that shit. Um, it's been signed CV 2018-11111, really easy to remember, just like the DNS server for, uh, what's he thinking? Um, you can remember the IP, can't remember who it is, but anyway. Uh, so, Cloudflare, yeah. So the uh, malicious, uh, a malicious DHCP server can hand out a set of DHCP options, which can uh, result in remote code execution. So uh, if you're not familiar with, if you haven't seen the CV yet, just think like shell shock in relation to um, DHCP. Um, one dot one dot one dot one. That's Cloudflare's, right? Yeah, that's Cloudflare's. So this is a CV 2018-1111. And, um, and yeah, so it's uh, basically, you can get remote code execution at the time that a new DHCP lease is uh, accepted. Um, so the DHCP handshake generally goes, uh, hey, where's the DHCP server? Hey, I'm over here. Um, hey, can I get a lease? Like, here's a lease. I accept the lease is the, is the general handshake. So um, when it receives the lease, it, passes, it ends up valing and passing and away you go. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool. So if you have uh, access to, um, if you have access to a network and you can run a rogue uh, DHCP server uh, and you wait for a machine that's on DHCP to boot, you can always reach that race condition where, um, so there's a timer usually when a DHCP client uh, asks for the DHCP server and it can get multiple responses. Um, and there's a lot of network protection as well on like switches and routers where they can also say like, uh, this is the DHCP authority, um, ignore everybody else. So depending on your position in the network, yeah, you'll be able to do it. And then, uh, yeah, we've got in, someone's already pasted in DHCP chat, how to use DNS mask to, um, to set it up. Um, yeah, this will be a Metasploit module soon enough, but it's, I mean, it's fairly limited in that it only affects network manager on, um, on Red Hat derivatives. Um, well, but if you can get in line in a DHCP, if you're spoofing DHCP responses on a, on a network segment, um, and it's only a matter of time, really, till you, you can game over some machine, a PXE boot or something. Um, so I, I think this is a bit of an edge case. It's kind of cool, but I, I think I don't it's more think... affected. It's more effective in like cloud environments, which I guess is our topic of the week after, where because a lot of the times where you're more likely to spin up and spin down instances, um, and you use DHCP option sets on AWS, for example. Um, like they can be set uh, per subnet, like it's tied to the subnet in that scenario. Um, similarly with uh, OpenStack, there is a patch that was deferred um, as well, where you could you could basically do the same thing, setting uh, DHCP option sets per subnet. So in uh, OpenStack Neutron. 
Um, should we just start talking about cloud now, or do we uh, talk about P PGP first? <laughs> do you want to talk about that real quick? I don't know which which is more important. Well, I, I would mean, say PGP. <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about PGP. Then we'll come back to uh, cloud, and then we'll I'll, I'll talk more about um, this CV in relevance to cloud shit and how you can uh, when we go on air, we drop zero days like we don't care, like you know. <laughs> oh yeah, so um, I guess who wants to help unpack this whole thing? PGP, you fail. Um, this should have been where Mister Ends talking. Yes, no, exactly. Or you should just get them on here. Um, so yeah, does anybody have any big opinions on this one? Because I was trying to follow this whole thing. It looked like it was a big to-do, and then people were saying it wasn't, and I'm still kind of confused. Uh, so my understanding, real quick, is that there was an embargo for 24 hours. Well, it was, it was announced the embargo would be lifted in 24 hours, and then the embargo broke basically straight away. Like within like 20 minutes, someone <laughs> already leaked it. So um, uh, everybody speculated really quickly as soon as that announcement went out. But the second that it, um, the second that the details came out, people started to backpedal real quick. Um, the link for this, I believe, is like efail.pk. I might just quickly find that link for Twitch, or if you have it handy, you. Well, I'm trying to throw it in there, but I have three different keyboards out right now. So yeah, hold on, I'll I'll put the link in there. Let me just quickly find it. Uh, Germans, it's the Germans. Dot de. There we go. There we go. Cool. Okay. All right. So the problem with PGP wasn't really a problem with PGP. Uh, it was more a problem with the mail clients and how it's used in relation to email. So um another another point to take note as well is it it's more likely to affect uh hdt uh sorry html emails rather than plain text so if you use mutt or something and you're not auto decrypting pgp and and whatever then you're probably smart um there's a whole bunch of mitigation mitigations um that are listed on that on that page as well uh and some some good facts that that came up as well so one of the important things to note is that the private key is not recovered. So that's good. That's a good thing. Um, but there is some edge cases where uh, old emails can be decrypted as well, I believe, but I'm not totally up to date on those. I'm, I'm not really sure that a lot of people that use PGP on a daily basis actually integrate it with Outlook. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I just haven't seen it that often. I've In seen it with Thunderbird. Corporate world. Like, maybe. Company, yeah, company, companies that use PGP internally with Thunderbird is, is way more likely than people who, like, if the company's using Outlook or, or like, um, with Office 365 or all that shit, they're unlikely to be using PGP anyway because they've chosen a shitty technology to begin with. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess if someone's using like MUT or whatever, then they've limited their attack surface to begin with. But if they're using Pine, then, you know, they may think they're cool, but they're dumb. Yeah, all I, all I can think of is like, I, 
rarely use PGP at all unless I absolutely have to. And then it's always within a VM or something on a command line. It's never integrated into a mail client. Um, I'm not the average user, but then PGP's always been pretty much unusable for an average user. So who knows? Yeah. Um, so Keybase tried really hard to make it usable for average people and it didn't work. Like a lot of um, journalists, you'll see they have like their Keybase listed in their, like their Twitter bios and shit like that. Um, it it kind of took off for a while, but I guess just there just wasn't enough people using it. Yeah, I think what it came down to was the like, the real scary part about this was people saying it is those people who don't know how to use PGP like properly um, that are most likely to be affected. So yeah, like, definitely. Like so, you get a lot of people like, for example, leaking things. Right, these aren't necessarily the most computer savvy people to begin with. Um, and so they might be more at risk than, than your average user. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So let's, let's take a scenario where, um, uh, say, WikiLeaks, or like we are talking about before, there's, they've got leakers and they, they use PGP, I guess. Like, um, I've never sent them an email, but uh, let's just assume they use PGP. And um, the person who's leaking reuses a key or some bullshit like that, or they use their key-based key because they just know that it's encryption. They don't really, really like, understand um, you know, or to curves or anything, you know, we're not talking about those people. Um, so now they've used their key and, uh, an email server gets compromised and it has a whole bunch of PGP, uh, emails in there that could be attacked, like previous emails that could be attacked. Um, you can imagine that a state sponsored effort to potentially like decrypt as many of those if possible as they can. Uh, could be a thing, and then that could lead to further investigations that lead, you know, in different directions. So, I think where it's really a problem, um, I, I mean, like like a danger. Not so like people who use PGP who don't really know how to use it could be in trouble, but also people who use like um, use PGP to keep themselves safe, but don't know, like that don't know how to use it, as opposed to like, oh, I taught my mom how to use PGP to keep her safe, but like she doesn't. Like it's not really like their emails to her kids don't really matter that much, you know. Yeah, pretty much exactly what I was thinking. If you can imagine, like um, the way that Signal works on on mobile devices and how we can encourage normal users to install Signal, um, it just works like it's seamless, and they don't really need to know anything about um, public encryption or what's actually going on under the hood. But if the signal client, like if, if they, they had a client that decided to start rendering HTML and inline PDFs and all kinds of stuff, then we'd have all kinds of issues of, that'd be very similar to this. It'd be client-side um, data leakage um, due to DNS lookups or something. We'd be able to smuggle all kinds of attacks into the client side. So in this particular example, I think it's um, HTML rendering email clients in general, have a massive attack surface. And we already knew that, which is why a lot of sensitive organizations don't use them. They don't allow Gmail. They don't allow these kind of things. Um, um, can we just the fact that it happens to like... be PGP as a payload, I think, is, um, is immaterial in this case. It makes it sound worse, but it's kind of two problems. Uh, PGP like, is separate. It's like putting a web browser in your car, right? Like... <laughs> yeah.
So, uh, Faith, you actually just said something that happened this week. There is XSS in the desktop client for Signal. Um, I'll just quickly put that into awesome. that's under embargo right now. That's sweet. Well, we have had we've had plenty of other previous, you know, Outlook um, XSS for the lack of a better term that allows you to reveal contents or, or make send cookies, whatever, get client side kind of stuff happening from Outlook. Um, it shouldn't be automatically opening and decrypting um, content. I, I don't. I don't think like I see a lot of people in the in the seem to be um, seem to be assigning blame, like saying that it's the P, the GPG PGP team say, look, what Outlook does with it is not our problem. Um, our product is solid. I mean, if the problem is with email, then it's definitely the client. Like PGP can only do like you know they they can only supply so much. I mean, if it does like, so for example, um, in the same uh, scenario, we look at WhatsApp and um, using the sig like signals encryption methods inside WhatsApp, that's fine for end-to-end -end encryption, but WhatsApp stored all the backups, backups unencrypted. So do you blame signal or WhatsApp? Like obviously you blame Mark Zuckerberg directly, but uh, WhatsApp is, <laughs> you know, they like, you know, they didn't, they, they're the ones with the unencrypted backups. Like you can't, if you're not faulting the actual um, cipher, then where, where are you faulting? So. Well, I remember having this argument years ago about um, whether email, whether it would be possible to get command execution or infect a machine using email. And I, ha I was arguing with this guy who was like an Emacs Mutt Pine developer of some sort. Uh, and he was saying that, um, he was pointing at the RFC saying, no, it's not possible to put code inside an email. And my argument was, it doesn't really matter what the SMTP RFC says. You've got Exchange and, and other web-based clients now that just do whatever they like, um, and they do render. And and if you can embed uh, uh, additional file content, images, whatever, into an email, um, then it becomes client-side exploitation. Um, well, exactly but he kept right. going back to the RFC saying, well, that's not in accordance with the RFC. Well, it doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't really matter that the... Uh, the RFC is solid for the protocol. If the if the client software that's reading it is doing all kinds of external stuff, it's got nothing to do with that RFC. So it's kind of the it's same just, argument. RFC, we got to remember that stands for like a lot of people don't realize it's request for comments for comments. Like it's not this isn't the like this is what the the, the consensus solution is, but like it's not a exact policy. You know what I mean? Like uh, that's. And then, yeah, they're very specific about must and should and words like that within the RFC. But even so, they're just words like it's just an RFC. It's not a cop, right? You don't have to listen to what it says. It's not putting a gun at your head. It's just guidance. Yeah. And again, that's one of the mitigations for um, the PGP thing was don't enable external content being loaded, which is you shouldn't be doing anyway, because like you said, like you embed a, a one by one pixel white like invisible GIF, and then now you have the user agent, the, their mail client, and you have their uh, the IP address, you know, their remote IP address, like or their gateway or whatever that they're using, you know, whatever method from loading external content. So, plus you're hitting like image rendering libraries, and it just opens up even more attack surface. The more the more file formats and embedded kind of stuff that your client supports, <laughs> the larger the attack surface is for memory corruption bugs and stuff. Live PDF.
image magic. Image magic. Oh, Never been exploited ever. <laughs> Rock solid, just like VLC. Uh, <laughs> hey, so you guys want to start talking about the cloud stuff now? <clears throat> Maybe we should just move right into that gracefully or ungracefully. Um, so yeah, this this week we wanted to get into cloud security, which is a pretty broad topic, but we've seen um, you know lots of different examples of it working and not working. And there are people here um, that have projects and other things to share about cloud security. So we have a couple questions to kind of just go over. Um, if you guys refer to the show notes, we can uh, post that again. Double check that we all have it. In so, yeah, what I wanted to kind of go over broadly is what are some of the challenges of protecting things in the cloud? Um, because as we're moving from on-premises data, um, I mean, servers and data centers, and we're moving them to data centers that we don't necessarily know where they are or know who else is there. Um, you know, as we start scaling out services and making them huge and more abstract, you know, there's obviously going to be the complications with it. Um, and also, good night, Luca. So, yeah, I guess we should start off with the first question: Is what are some of the challenges of getting things in the cloud? Does anybody have any opinions on that? Plenty. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it seems like I, think I was talking earlier before we went live about like um, MongoDB and how like a quarter of all MongoDB instances are have been ransomed under whatever. I think I mean a lot of it is just people don't bother to change any settings, right? MongoDB <laughs> is interesting as well because uh, there's no MongoDB service on AWS, for example. So you have to set up EC2 with your own thing, which means you now you are now in charge of patching, which is um, like. One of the benefits of using a cloud service is that if you run like with RDP, uh, RDP, um, RDS in AWS, so you're running with the relational uh, database service, um, Aurora DB is like, mm, I guess it's some Amazon fork of um, uh, MariaDB Galera, which is the, the scalable one. Um, and it's basically like my MySQL drop in. Um, but like if you're running with like one of those type things, one of the options, Postgres, whatever. Um, Amazon are going to patch it, and you select a patch window. But if you're running MongoDB on AWS, you're you know the patches are yourself. And um, if you go back to like 3.2, maybe is where they switched from um, V8 to Spider Monkey, and a bunch of bugs that were in V8 that got patched that are, like got patched in Chrome, got patched in everywhere else. They never got patched in old MongoDB because they were switching. To, they just changed out the, the uh, JavaScript engine. So that's, you know, that's a thing. Uh, I think it's 3.2 if anyone wants to go look and check, like any listening people who wants to go explore. And potentially the zone expand, zone new methods in V8, maybe, I don't know, look there. So yeah, I mean, I think that one of the big things that is just always going to be part of software is that, you know, that patching aspect of it and people just sort of deploying things that they might not be sure where they get it from or they might not be sure, you know, if it's up to date or there's a lot of weird challenges. Like we have things like AMIs and, and 
you know, or basically machine images and, and VMs and, and certain things that we kind of just trust the configuration of because we're not building those things from scratch from ourselves. When you deploy something from like say Docker or you deploy, you know, some image in the cloud or what, what have you on some whatever, on whatever service you're using, you kind of just have to trust that that is okay, you know, because we're just relying and building off of those pre-existing things that people are developing, but you don't necessarily have the full control over it because a lot of people are there just to grab applications to deploy. They'd say, oh, I need like a fully, you know, configured, customizable Apache server to throw up in there, or MongoDB server. For, just, the, for those who don't know, how would you define what a cloud is and what's the differences between the different services of clouds, like AWS versus G Cloud versus whatever, you know? Yeah, that's a good general question to, to, to start it off. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's the cloud is, people put it best by saying cloud is just somebody else's computer. Uh, usually it's just, you know, data centers that have a bunch of server racks, um, blades in it that are just hosting a bunch of uh, virtual machines that you can provision and control from a handy web console or from the command line. Um, I've heard someone say that cloud is an acronym for um, can't locate our users' servers. Can't, lo can't locate our users' data, maybe? That's much better. <laughs> yeah, the S screwed us up. <laughs> yeah, I was like, so it's data, something like that. That's, that's not my quote. I heard it somewhere. I to, yeah. You're fired. <laughs> And if you if you use like Google, um, if you just use like Gmail for your domain, and and you use all of their standard web-based Gmail stuff, that's still cloud, right? That's basic cloud usage. Yeah. Dropbox. Dropbox, the world's most noisy protocol ever. A lot of a lot of SMEs use Office three sixty five, um, and from a security consulting perspective, I kind of encourage them to do that. Um, the less I'd rather them be booting up into any other operating system pretty much and just using Office 365 inside a browser than using actual Office products on the desktop. <laughs> oh, yeah, with the new uh, Excel JavaScript we talked about last week as well. Oh, okay. That's exactly what I want. Um, but okay, so I guess with the uh, actual answering the question, like what is a cloud, when we talk about a private cloud, I guess. Um, we generally talk, we're talking about uh, a subset of, um, like there's a set of applications. So uh, if you look at Canonical's offering, they have like Metal as a service, um, like the, the mass controller. And so that, that controller is like this uh, thing that does like a software defined networking, like um, the setup that will automatically um, use like IPMI and Pixie Boot. Um, against like a whole rack. So you turn a whole rack on and off and you have sort of like, when you have these setups of like OpenStack or, um, you know, and that, that's a, another cloud offering that's from, you know, uh, from Red Hat, from SUSE, uh, whatever you say, the stupid name, Nobel, um, from Rackspace use it. Uh, it's used at a bunch of other, uh, like the LHC, um, a bunch of places like this, like there's a subset of um, components that not everybody uses all of them. So, you have like the primary stuff, which provisions hardware. So it turns racks on and off. And then after that, you have different things like uh, the like Keystone in OpenStack, for example, is the identity management. So for people familiar with AWS, 
that's uh, comparable to like IAM. Um, and then you have like Horizon, which is your dashboard. So then like that's the, the dashboard module and all these things come together um, to, to build it. So like in, in some stacks you might have, like you'll have like Neutron, which will be like the, the software defined networking. Um, and then you'll have like Neutron, Keystone and Horizon. And then like Ironic for provisioning iron metal. And then you'll have like uh, like heat for templating and cinder for um, block storage, um, and uh, like Trove is like a really funny one. That's a database as a service, um, but Trove is anyone who deploys Trove. I don't know if this is still the case, but Trove was interesting because when it deployed a database as a service, it actually allowed that traffic from uh, at one point anyway for the client from the tenant networks that you create, the software defined tenant networks needed to cross onto the management network to reach their databases. So there was like a total, which is why a lot of people chose like a lot of different um, distributors chose not to include Trove was because of uh, that crossover. The architecture was in my opinion, not uh, sound. But, we were talking um, about that earlier too, but like before we went live, we were talking about that same sort of thing, right? Yeah, so there was um, some interesting bugs that I've seen in uh, Neutron, for example, um, uh, was um, like unidirectional traffic could be passed like due to like, so this is, we're talking about like right down to the base level, let's forget about cloud for a second, let's straight back to IP tables. Um, and the IP tables rules that were deployed using the automation um, would allow uh, unidirectional traffic um, unidirectional UDP traffic, I believe, specifically, and some IPv6, uh, IPv6 traffic across like tenant networks and the, and the management network. So the management network, I'll just like clarify, like generally, if you're talking about like cloud infrastructure, management network is like where boxes are provisioned, where people, like where the people who own the hardware, like my computer type people, um, where they exist. And then the tenant network is like, I purchased access or I'm a reseller. And then so like, you can have like your, your fiber, like the, the digital fiber layer. layer. Um, I don't mean like fiber optic, I mean like the, the fabric, sorry. Um, and then like that can be split up into like little tenant networks that people buy. So, you know, where you've got your two, one server, two servers, three servers, like you just exist within that, that small tenant network. Um, and, you know, if anyone, like, I guess people are familiar with different cloud shit now, but um, yeah, you can make build your own subnets or virtual VPCs like within that. Um, yeah, someone we'll talk before the show about, uh, I think you, you mentioned um, like data recovery as well on like shared block storage. Oh yeah, was, you're talking about that you, something like DDing, <laughs> setting up and DDing shit. Must have stepped away for a second. Hey, yeah, sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, um, yeah. So no, one of the one of the big <laughs> funny things that I was talking to people about earlier before we hit on the air was <clears throat> about not properly having stuff cleared on the drives, right? Right. Yeah. So like yeah. Uh, la lazy thin provision virtual storage. Yeah. So um, basically, you know, when you have like a hard drive and you are, you know, quickly putting, you know, customer data 
here or there um, onto them. I mean, there's, you know, depending on how it actually is, you know, put, I mean, the data is actually put onto the drive. Um, you, you know, there's going to be artifacts of the previous data that was on there if it wasn't properly zeroed out. So if there's still, like, it's basically like, you know, imagine like a corrupted USB drive and you have to take all the blocks and and look and try to find files from there. Um, you can, in some instances in the cloud, do that and find secrets that are hidden um, that were previously um, from the person who had the, the drive or access the drive before you. Um, and so that's one of the challenges that I definitely think is, is really interesting about the cloud is that we're, you know, for something like AWS or, or G Cloud, you know, we're, we have giant, very, very fast moving provisioning that's happening on all, all these different data centers and they're replicated and they're reused constantly. And the processes in which this happens might not always be the most secure um, in terms of, I guess, how data would be properly destroyed or properly handled. Um, but that's, you know, also the consequence of having the, the speed at which you can quickly deploy something and provision you know, your own however many instances you need. Um, so yeah, I think that's one of the major challenges of the, of the cloud is that you're sharing those resources, like public resources, basically. You get your private you know, little slice of it, but it's still something that other people exist you know, within. Yeah, it's interesting. There's um on that like you know business cares about performance. Like they want to deploy quickly. They don't care that, or maybe they do. If they really cared about the secure destruction of data, would they be on the cloud at all? And probably not. Like you know, um, and that's again a case where um self-managed private clouds come in um as opposed to using Amazon. Um, I guess I didn't mention software before as well being another uh, IBM's cloud offering. Um, and Blue Mix, and they've got some other shit too. But um, yeah, so like if you take something like a private cloud and you took that attack where you DD the disk and you like try to re recover artifacts, yeah, unlikely to do so. Um, but just thinking about like VMware's VMFS, um, if that's being used very quickly, you might not have like you might not have the same geometry. Um, like sorry, you might have the identical geometry as the disk that's just been deleted, but you might not be at the same place on the disk, but like on the physical disk, but then uh, that might be where somebody else was partially before. Um, and you might've partially overwritten your data, their data with your operating system, but then there might be some like bleed over that. So it's, you know, it's uh, definitely an interesting thing. Um, similarly related to that is like, there was a, a vulnerability with um, S3 buckets on Amazon at one point where I, I actually don't know the exact details of this, so I'm gonna be real vague, but somebody can Google it and I'm sure that someone has an article that writes about it. But um, after an S3 bucket was deleted, there was like an hour window or something where you could actually um, take the data from that S3 bucket regardless of the policy, I wanna say. I'm not, if someone else has more information on that, that'd be good. Well, I, I remember hearing about it vaguely, but that's, there's been all kinds of, there's been all kinds of issues with the AWS buckets. I mean, what was it the police have had an issue? A lot of military has had an issue of just people having access to this stuff because it was, I guess, public facing or whatnot. Yeah. AWS also has an interesting thing where when you created a bucket for a website, like for it to be a public hosted bucket, 
um, you still needed to make like their crazy JSON policy object. And a lot of people got it wrong, even though there, there was examples. The examples were not extremely clear. Um, and a lot of people got it wrong. And then there was cases where like um, big companies had checked their IAM keys into Git and they were recovered from you know Git and whatever uh, from GitHub. And yeah, like I S3 buckets were just like, well, it's like, think of it like FTP in the cloud, right? So I got my FTP creds off GitHub, lol. What do you think about the Intel flaws affecting clouds? Uh, okay, I, I don't know about like Spectre and Meltdown specifically. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't want to talk, like, I don't know enough to talk about them directly, but one bug that I looked at um, in OpenSSL in relation to this is uh, was Cache Bleed, which came out the same time as Drown. Um, I can't remember what the, the CV was, but it came out of like the University of Tel Aviv and, um, uh, Nicta uh, in Australia, the University of Adelaide, um, as well. And, um, basically what it was, was a vulnerable version of, um, uh, OpenSSL. If, if a process was doing decryptions, um, on one like hyper-threaded core um, and then a second um, thread that was controlled by an attacker shared the same core affinity um, on that hyper-threaded core, you would be able to uh, hammer one of the cache banks and scatter, gather, recover the private key being used to perform the decryptions. That's, so that's pretty critical. That's pretty critical to me. Yeah. It, it's yeah it is but it's also really unlikely to be to, to for that to happen in the real world specifically with like hypervisors and and core affinity but that like that's a like super edge case where if you really care about security like and, and it was patched in openness as well it wasn't a uh wasn't a microcode um well it was related to but it wasn't specifically a microcode flaw like um spectrum melt meltdown was um, well, combined with like same in like the management engines where you had like was it login as admin with no password? Oh yeah, Jesus. Oh, uh, dude, that was a good one on uh, Linode, 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 whatever you want to call them, um, where they have the uh, serial console was exposed over a USB, uh, USB over a uh, VNC type session thing in your browser, and um, you could shut down your your host while you were logged into the console. And it would drop you to a shell, Oops. like on the, on the jump host. So, well, but I think it, like those same kind of let's go back to just what we we're talking about with uh, like provisioning and whatnot. Where in order to make things go fast, there is a there's a price. Um, ultimately, there's a trade off, and I think, like I said, you see that in the cloud and you see that even when it comes to like obviously the intel bugs yeah i think um definitely if you're able to execute like code in like ring negative two like who cares <laughs> who gives a shit where you execute from right yeah you have a lot of access at that point right like it doesn't matter whether you're um on the cloud off the cloud in docker or out of docker like you're in ring negative two who gives a shit yep you're pretty much fucked at that point Forgive my language there. Um, yeah, so I mean, 
uh, I guess we've talked about earlier, like DHCP as well, like the, this DHCP flaw, um, specifically affecting Red Hat variants, and I believe it includes uh, AWS Linux. I, mean, I can't, I can't confirm. I haven't personally confirmed that, but um, if it does affect AWS Linux, that's pretty funny because like it's the base of a whole bunch of the AWS applications. You just like one one click spin up this shit, and um, with that as well, like so your DHCP option set being uh, set um, uh, in your on the subnet in AWS, so you could log in literally like I don't know whether they have some protection against what the payload is or whatever in there, but or if you have to, you could maybe try the the AWS CLI to set it, but if you're able to inject that into the option set that way every box that was then spun up within that subnet would be like remote rooted straight away. So you could either, um, you know, inject a, a key for uh, private keys or whatever. But then another thing, another thing to point out is like, if you have that level of access already, are you escalating? Are you pivoting? Are you, um, you know, are you just maintaining access at this point? Are we talking about like cloud post exploitation stuff? Like, like if you're going to go down that DHCP route, um, are you just trying to be sneaky or like maybe your IAM key allows network access, but not to spin up new boxes. So you wait for that, like you might, um, you know, modify the networking and then like wait and then a new box comes up and now you've owned that box, but you were never actually able to spin up a box yourself. Is this too much thought stream? Am I just like fucking random? I mean, it's an interesting line to follow, right? Like, because I mean, a lot of things come out, and it's like, okay, use for this equals. Yeah. Right. Um, I also think, uh, I believe actually that the Docker images um, for uh, the affected operating systems should not contain, like the, at least the Red Hat one doesn't contain the, the DNS client because Docker sets the internal networking shit, so. So Docker is uh, is is not affected by this bug, as far as I've seen. So, what do you guys think are some of the biggest fails that we've seen in cloud security? Like, not not just on the resources that are at hand, but I guess the ways that people approach the cloud. So, we're talking about stuff like you know people leaving IAM creds and like you know repos that are on GitHub, or you know poorly managed S3 buckets, but what do you guys think are some of the most common fails that are common, uh, I guess, things that people do to screw themselves over? The ICD pipelines. So yep. if you compromise like CICD, like if you compromise like their um, BuildBot or Travis CI or whatever, what's, what are they? Jenkins. Called? Jenkins, yeah. Bamboo from um, Atlassian. If you compromise any of that shit, like they're fucked before they start. And a lot of people are like so worried about production that they're not worried about like their uh, CI/CD pipelines. Yeah, and you know what's interesting too is like you know Shodan, you can find like actually Defhan who's the moderator for um, our stream chat, <laughs> which is <laughs> full of ass gear right now. Um, so the um, what's they called they found a bunch of like Jenkins servers on Shodan that were just open, and it's just like that you know they're being stored you know on cloud hosts and stuff like that, but they're just 
there and they're they're monitoring i mean managing that kind of stuff and it's just like what with the travis ci free stuff right so like if you like you'll notice you'll see the travis um configurations in a lot of github repos because if you use the free one like it's hosted in the cloud you can't host it yourself it costs money um actually at the time that i looked at it last which was a while ago you couldn't host it yourself they were that was what they were ramping up for but um yeah like if imagine a scenario where you know of a bug that the travis host is like uh, you know vulnerable to and then you went for like a public platform like that and now like because it's cloud it's, it's a cloud build you know build chain like it's cool um if you were to compromise that through getting it to some some vulnerability where it built went to build your code but then you broke out of that and then you had access to everything else it was building like what could you inject into the artifacts from those builds yeah um, exactly yeah, another thing that I've seen as well is I think I'm, I might have mentioned this on the stream before. Um, so one thing that a lot of th uh, this is not specifically cloud, but it is um, cloud related um, is people using Git and CI/CD to deploy and not removing their like dot uh, Git config from their um, artifacts. Like if they're deploying um, directly with like like some Node.js app or whatever. Like yeah. The, the .git directory still exists. And I wrote a tool like, I don't know, it's like over five years ago now. It's called um, Git Money. It's on GitHub. I think one of the events is needs updating. But um, yeah, so what you can do with it is uh, if they have, like you can recover um, using LFIs and then regex from the output, uh, you can recover the entire Git tree and rebuild it. Um, and if somebody has previously checked keys into the uh, repo and then like remove them and committed them, you can roll back and get those keys back out. So you, that should be like a private repo that you can recover from a production environment and then like roll back and like look for keys through that. And um, like git ignore is like a great place to look, to start looking at that shit as well. Yeah. You can read it's like, yeah, git ignore where the keys are and then be like roll back until a point where it wasn't in the git ignore. Yep. No, I mean it's <laughs> it's pretty funny because I mean stuff like it's funny you mentioned like Node.js and stuff. A lot of things ask you, you know, and it's it's a common you know courtesy is say hey you back us up on GitHub or hey like put this X Y Z. But people don't realize that those aren't things that are meant for production. You know, there might be development aspects of it, but they're not something that you're going to want to put onto your public repo and you know have it be your company's you know AWS creds or API keys for some expensive service that you don't want to have down itself. So, so yeah. have you used like Heroku app or uh, something like that? Oh, uh, Hermit app, but so kind of. All right, so like uh, Heroku app or like OpenShift um, online, like which is the, the Red Hat Cloud or uh, what's the IBM's, I think I mentioned it before, Bluemix maybe I think is their app thing. Um, I don't know if Bluemix works the same, but um, the other two, you basically can create a Git repo and you push it to the server. And when you push, that triggers the build. And then you have like, with Heroku app, you have like a, a file that defines this This is a Node app or this is a Django app or whatever. And it uses their environment to spin up the instance for you. And then your actual other services, so for example, your database service or whatever that you've selected, that whether you pay for it or you use a free one, um, the credentials are in the environment. So then you just read the environment variables and then you have 
whatever. Then you, you now have your DB creds, you connect to it. But that's all based on pushing to Git and forgetting that, like, you know, serverless type shit you just push to Git. Like, like I'm not a big serverless guy. I don't know a lot about it, but it's becoming more and more popular. Like well, Lambda apps and stuff like that. Yeah, I think this once again goes to like the underlying issue that like developers aren't security people, just like by nature. And like, I don't think many people even consider like developers probably consider Git a like security issue, like or anything around it. And yeah, so that's, that's where you get a lot of this coming from. Yeah, and there's also the case like just as a test, I wanted to run uh, an IRC bot, so I pushed it to um, I, I put a web server, a Node.js web server, in the top of my index.js, and uh, directly below that, I just put my IRC bot code, and um, it then pushed it to Heroku, and it ran like no problem. Um, so and like it didn't, you know, it didn't stop. It it stayed up until. Um, the server dropped or something so if you replace irc bot with like bitcoin miner and then you use like <laughs> you know, whatever like monero miner whatever you use like that and you push to a whole bunch of like cloud services with your miner how much free compute time can you actually get like probably quite a bit if you tried hard enough right yeah it's like the like the npm thing you talked about which, uh, however long ago like how npm is just it's absolutely awesome. ridiculous like the stuff that you can just like get into get, like the trouble you can get yourself into <laughs> yeah like uh, the left zero pad being pulled and whatever like yeah oh, left, left pad, sorry yeah yeah and all the npm creds that were just hanging out oh yeah yeah bcrypt had that stuff she tweeted about that where I think it was like over 50% of like NPM creds were like vulnerable or whatever. Yeah. Just that's, a couple million installs. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think what other stuff, like I've seen a lot of stuff come through on like specifically uh, cloud platforms. Just trying to think of some of the others, like, I mean, uh, some of the monitoring tools um, were outdated and removed, like Nagios and whatever like that. Like they didn't get used anymore. Um, so they didn't really get patched. And then the patches didn't seem important, but they also weren't installed by default. But then like developers, like what do developers do? Uh, what, sorry, sysadmins, like what do sysadmins do? Like, oh, they don't care, they just want that thing. So like, it's yeah. never intended to be used, but it is. I think one of the interesting things that this does um like having more uniform stuff in the cloud is that it's really a lot more homogenous which is good and bad uh but we have you know certain i guess configurations and things like there's there's common like say like how many people use the common like aws ubuntu ami you know there's so many people that use like the most basic one to deploy a basic thing even students you know or people who like are junior developers and are learning like AWS or G Cloud or whatever, like people are using the most common basic things and it kind of like increases, I guess, the attack surface or it makes the attack surface more predictable because you're not gonna have random weirdo services that are old and legacy now. It's like pretty uniform. You're gonna find like your your Ubuntu, you know, 16.04 
and other stuff just deployed there for you with the same packages, same configuration and everything. If there's any issues in those base configurations that you don't know about, that's something that's going to be very easy for people to check if they want to come in and, and just, you know, do a scan of a whole subnet of AWS stuff. And hi, ZLZ. Hey, what's up? Do we have um, links? So, like, one of the things I guess for people listening that they can do is they can check their own um, IAM keys and what policies and permissions they have, as well as their S3 buckets um, and what policies and permissions they have. There's a whole bunch of tools that I don't have any links handy for. Um, but yeah, there are tools out there that will scan for you uh, that pen testers use to basically find those quick footholds. Um, I don't know, Faith, can you think of anything off the top of your head for checking like uh, bucket storage on Azure or something? Not for Azure specifically. Like Amazon maybe? No, I'm only really familiar with like S3 buckets. A lot of tools for S3 scanning, but. Yeah, do you want to just like link one in the chat? I'm throwing some in the chat right now. Some of the stuff that we had shared before. Um, so there's things like um, the S3 scanner from, was it S-A-N-E-R-Salmon? I don't know how you say that. Um, but yeah, it's a S3 bucket scanner here. Another one that fetches IP addresses tied to your AWS account. Yeah, there's so many weirdo tools. I'm trying to remember what the one, ooh, there's somebody actually, I remember, ooh, I don't know where I want to find it. It was on Risky Business, actually, I remember, DMZ. There's somebody who had made the tools that were for uh, enumeration of AWS stuff, but actually, I'm going to look for it right now. I know that DXC Security actually had uh, have a tool that they use for checking because um, they hilariously also got owned um, through their IAM keys, which is, you know, so they, so, you know, DXC got owned through IAM, but they actually have a tool themselves for scanning other people, like clients' IAM keys. Anyway. Um, but if you have, so DefHands asks, if you have access to an S3 bucket, can you hop around from there? Um, if it's used to host code for Lambda or something like that, then yes, you can. Also, like, yeah. persistent success and whatnot. I think me, me and another researcher in the past have, uh, in particular with Yahoo, there was a case where uh, it was server-side request forgery and we were able to grab IAM keys. And they, like, it was, it was really strange because the way they handled it, like, uh, one of the one of the things you notice more and more with bug bounty is like they no companies really assume you're gonna have a uh, host authentication or whatever and things like that. So they just had like the IAM keys to have like global privileges and privilege over everything. So like the bounty was like nine grand because like they it was it was basically RCE for like even beyond that like different boxes they had deployed. But it's really interesting to see like uh, the 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 fact that like the AWS metadata endpoint exists is really interesting because I see like a ton of devs who are just like. You know, let's say they have a service which is for uh, uploading, you know, profile images to, you know, the rest of the bucket or whatever. And like, some of them don't even read documentation and things like that, and know that that's like a big deal to have that exposed. So like, it's like accepted practice for them to like not. Under I, I guess what I'm saying is like, they don't even know that it's exposed. I guess. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting point you brought up where they they're only thinking about the border. They're not thinking about internal, which is where we get into things like zero trust network and defense in depth, defense in layers, things like that. Those same things that the NSA adopted so long ago and in a different space still apply to cloud. People just don't think about it. It's like, it's a yeah. different, their brain doesn't work anymore. I don't know. Exfiltration. 
Yes. Um, CLZ, what ex can you describe the remember the thing we were doing uh, with AWS keys? I'm trying to remember what the actual name of that IP address is that you can use to search yeah. for. You mean the 169.254.169.254? Or yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's there's a lot of different ways to to approach it. I mean, like some sometimes they'll you can do like standard stuff to access it. You know, like how you can use zip.io or whatever xip.io appended yeah. to the IP address and things like that. There's a ton of different ways. Uh, but are, do you just mean what the IP address was? Yeah. Well, I was saying what I guess is the service or what does that service do? Because I know that you doing your web app web application security stuff. You have a lot more experience with testing that kind of stuff and pulling things like AWS CRES directly from a website that might be vulnerable. Yeah, so the, the most like extensive things I've seen are like uh, from the AWS people, they'll be, it's basically everything relative to that specific uh, deployment or that specific like instance. So like it'll, it'll have the server hosted on a bunch of like data relative to the person uh, hosting it, things like that. But I mean like, the worst thing we've I've seen is an installation script on that service, and uh, the service had AWS keys. So like I don't know, there, it, it's basically just uh, I don't know. From what I could I could I've never read too much or I haven't read too much documentation, but from like real world experience, it's just it's just stuff that's relative to the user session and stuff relative to that deployment. Okay, yeah. So yeah, an example of something that we had done, or ZLZ and I had had tested, played with, was something that you're able to load. Um, there's like a kind of like I guess like a we consider old school RFI but as a, as a feature, um, but able to use those kind of things to figure out what the AWS creds were for a given account that was hosting this application. Um, and there's a lot of just random weirdo things like that that it just as I as I do more testing and stuff on cloud stuff, it's 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 just weirder that to know how much is actually available, I guess, as far as settings go, and people being unaware of how to actually make those things not to the general yeah. public. It's really cool. There's a, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to go with different vulnerability. I'll talk about it after. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, it's really interesting to see like SSRF being like in the spotlight so much for like an actual like issue. Like I know, you know, in the past, it's like, hey, I can need localhost 22 and see what version SSH you're running. And like, with most of these companies, obviously, there's like uh, other boxes and other things to read from. But like when it gets more and more like a standard problem from like a generic deployment of something as common as AWS, it's interesting to see like the new issues that come to light. And one of the main things that I've noticed is like really poor regex and really poor uh, you know whitelisting, blacklisting that takes place in most of these companies. So like there's some libraries that are coming out. I think there's a one from Uber that pr protects against SSRF. Uh, I'm just gonna Google it really quick. But yeah, that's one of the big issues now. It's just like how to identify, you know, what's what's good and bad, what's not internal, what's external. Because there's, you know, you can like one three hundred one redirect, or like two, you can just have it resolved to localhost and things like that. Yeah. So this is the this is the kind of the bug I was going to talk about was in um, uh, searching for heat templates uh, in through OpenStack Horizon. So um, basically, the, instead of putting in the URL for the template, you could then insert like a different. Um, uh, stream handler and then use like you know HTTP internal IP address port number and you would actually get the response of either like connection refused um, host like host not found connection refused or um, garbage and then that's basically what you know your SSH header or something like that so then um, that was actually a cross between 
I believe it was, it was you were able to cross the uh, client, the tenant network onto the management network to start scanning hosts that way. So that was that was pretty interesting. Like say turning um you know uh, that SRF type bug into a port scanner, like across um, privilege levels. No, that's really interesting. I just. Yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting. There's so many. I, I was reading up the thing that uh, ZLD had just shared, um, the Uber thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's just it's interesting to see how sort of older, there are different types of attack vectors that are able to be leveraged again through stuff. Um, yeah, I think SSRF, like more and more, is going to become. Uh definitely become like an issue again. Like it, it, it's interesting to see how people handle it differently. Cause I know like, uh, for instance, like teams handling programs on HackerOne, like there is one program with like, uh, and they, they treat it as a very low severity issue and said, okay, you know, it's it's definitely a low severity issue. You can't really do much with it. You can port scan. But like at the end of the day, if you're able to send like a blind get request, like across a network, like there's a, there's a vulnerability I saw on a router one, like I think, and it was basically, uh, it was like get based uh, unauthenticated remote code execution. So like identifying these services and things like that, I think a lot of teams don't realize it, but it's just like super valuable and can definitely be uh, leveraged. Hey, so uh, is this a, is, is SSRF in the OWASP top 10 now? Like, um, let me check. That's not something I, I don't really read this shit, but um, yeah. <laughs> so XXE is, which is, you know, uh, thing. There's a general injection, it's like the one, like, insecured, uh, the serialization, yeah, not really. Well, it was like what we were talking about last week, I think after, it was like, even those like small things, right? Like, if something comes along in the future, like that could complete a bug chain and lead to something much, much worse. Like any, any yeah. small thing. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know, um, there's another another test that I did uh, that I recall as well, like with um, AAD, if anyone's familiar with uh, the Azure Active Directory. So that's like the cloud-based Microsoft Active Directory. So basically take your, your on-site AD server and throw it out the window. Um, and yeah, by being a regular user on that, like I was able to query LDAP and find um, like through the web interface, nothing special, but yeah, I was able to like click through users and, and find um, a field that like a specific field that was used for um, the swap cards. I don't know if I've talked about using the swap cards before, but um, the entry cards to the building, like the actual serial number that each user had was a field in LDAP and that was like on Azure AAD. Um, had I had I have not, yeah, like, so you couldn't actually complete the handshake on the, the access control at the door um, because of the way it worked, but there's other systems that being cloud-based use it. So um, I guess there's, that's one thing, but had it have been a local uh, AD server, I guess I would have had to go through slightly more effort to find that um, directly. So yeah, putting it on the cloud seemed like a good idea, but what else did it expose was like, wasn't really thought of. Yeah, that's a huge thing that you know, I think a lot of people don't really consider as much because you know things that are getting migrated to the cloud, if something used to be internal, maybe not, it, it maybe isn't configured correctly, I guess, for internal routing through like Route 53 or whatever on AWS. And so things that used to be, you know, more 
or used to be like on-prem behind some firewall, behind some whatever VLAN, you need whatever crazy setup you want to have. Those things are being migrated up. And the challenges with that are, are, are pretty vast because, I mean, figuring out how to do that completely different type of routing with all AWS's tools is just a, a whole different ball game. And if you screw it up, it really, you know, fucks it up pretty bad. Yeah. You, you really it's, screw it up. It's kind of strange because, like, one, you know, like, let's say you have SSRF or something somewhere on your application, like, even if you follow, like, all best practices and things like that, like, for instance, uh, this flash server status or Nginx uh, status, whatever, page that is you know only accessible from localhost or uh, internal ips like then you can just pull that page and like i don't know it's kind of interesting to just see like the one thing that surprises me more and more every day is just like teams never assume that people can get like post again like post authentication or uh, post authentication access and i think one of the major things now is like uh this is kind of on a tangent but like for instance blind xss right you've got like this crazy firewall thing protected you know only have to be this ip authenticate to the vpn but at the end of the day, if you're able to load data into the browser of the person who's authenticated, they're behind the firewall, they're doing all this, then it's literally you have control over that and you don't need to do anything. So it's just really strange to see like web vulnerabilities and all these vulnerabilities just kind of completely contradict these crazy security policies. I think it's, um, again, another tangent, but um, cryptocurrency as well. Like if you're going to run, uh, say, Masternode for some crypto thing, are you going to run a physical server for it or are you an idiot who's just going to like put it on the cloud and then you know um a lot of people in cryptocurrency land are not from finance land and finance land and cryptocurrency land are like you know they're totally totally different like a bank is never going to run any of their shit on like a public cloud that <laughs> yeah you know, they, they have data centers and stuff you know they own physical infrastructure they own buildings um and there's a security, like there's access control around those buildings. They know who can walk in and who can walk out. If you, if say you ran like a, a block, like a wallet or something that like against the master node on something astute, like you were really retarded and you went for like a Roku app, you know, <laughs> like all of a sudden now, like, yeah. you know, it's really easy to do, but you, you done, you done the dumb thing. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that with like with Bitcoin exchanges because I had a I had a case to or just about a couple of days ago where uh, it's a really really popular peer to peer Bitcoin exchange that I was just doing uh, work on since I had a bounty program and I was able to be able, I was able to get uh, access to like an administrator panel through like you know probing the administrator's browser BlindXSS and uh, when I reported it, I was like hey here's the source of your admin page here's the master wallet here's the core wallet page I can see your balances I can see your user details and I said oh that's yeah, that, that's really crazy. You can see that, but luckily for us, or luckily for us, we have really good prevention to access our admin panel. But it's like, no, I can I can make XML HTTP requests. I can run these things. Like, it's it, it's completely contradicted. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's like building a big wall that you can dig under. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And definitely. Like once the second you say like, uh, here's your like master wallet or here's your hot wallet, like, and then they're like, ah, oh, but our admin like panel is protected it's like I've, I've got the wallet who cares yeah absolutely i'm, I'm going to ecuador peace out yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just a strange feeling i don't know it's it's weird having to explain that and i've seen like uh working as a triager uh so many teams have really trouble understanding the impact of these things because you're really taught this really narrow-minded uh like here's a vulnerability type here's the you know cvss for it here's how it can be used and then it's just associated with that forever, you know? 
So like little yeah. things like CSRF, UCMO, it's just, you know, a severity issue. But at the end of the day, you really have to look into like the actual case scenario, case by case of the impact. Actually, I'm, uh, there's another bug I thought of as well. It was, uh, it was in um, uh, Keystone um, in OpenStack for Federation. So this isn't really a used, it's not a really common feature. Like it's disabled by default. Um, and uh, and yeah, so um, basically with Federated Keystone, there was this like, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge hater of Python list comprehension, okay? And this is like one of the reasons why. Like Python list comprehension to me is a way to write bugs real fast. Like people are too smart for their own good. Um, and like, like you could you could use a for loop and achieve the same thing in 10 lands, but you can read it or you could do like list comprehension and suck at it. And in this particular case, um, they wrote this uh, thing that would like take a list of groups that you were in from LDAP and then map them against the list of groups that you're in in uh, the cloud in your in, in the in Keystone or whatever. And then um, like assign the groups, or whatever. But it turned out that if you're in zero groups in LDAP, you actually got all groups in uh, Keystone, so including administrator, including the, the like the not just the tenant administrator, but like the management. You became a wow. cloud manager, and it was like so. I I believe this bug never made it to production, but um, but yeah, like it was like did exist and I was like, holy shit. Like if, like whoever, if someone is important enough to be using federated logon for their like cloud platform, then this is obviously going to have a really high impact, but you know, like the, it just, it was an interesting thing to bring into the impact that um, who would use, like what kind of person actually needs federated logon. So yeah, that was interesting. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, access controls and stuff in the cloud, like, you know, integrating like LDAP and other stuff, it's just interesting to see how that's going to play out over time, you know, um, <clears throat> because we have such crazy hybrid environments for some, especially a lot of like older, like legacy, people are running a lot of legacy stuff that are saying, finally, we're going to upgrade our 15 year old, like, you know, server 2003 and move it up to the cloud or, or integrate with that. It's just, there's so many, there's going to be so many weird gaps in this sort of, in, in the environments that are being migrated for pretty big companies that I think are gonna be problems for a while while they still yeah. try to how to retire. And you're seeing some like really- uh, Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, was saying, I was saying like, a, just like bring a conversation, you know, like Docker and how that's gonna affect, uh, you know, continuous integration platforms and things like that. And these really cool tools that are coming out. And just how that's going to affect that. So I think it's really interesting to see. Yeah, um, one of the terms I guess we should uh, bring up that's like I find it's it's so markety and so lame. But born in the cloud applications, <laughs> and actually, um, like born in the cloud, like we we built this with cloud in mind is basically what they're saying. But you know, like giving <laughs> the whole notion of giving birth to an application is like some real special snowflake developer shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who do you really think coined the term cloud and are they ripping it off from Apple? I think they just kind of went with the marketing terms and people were asking questions of why this uh, service is pointing towards this cloud. And they're like, oh yeah, that's the cloud. They just kind of went from that. At least that's the wise deal I've been told. Old man shakes fist to cloud. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. So with all this stuff, we have like about twelve minutes left here. Um, I wanted to ask the question of how can we leverage our existing knowledge now to make the cloud more secure moving forward? Because we have we have um, you know various best practices and endless endless AWS documentation about about stuff that people are probably never going to read. But I guess with the knowledge that you have now, what sort of suggestions would you make? Or what sort of things would you like to see changed about how people approach security in the cloud? Because it's going to be more and more important as more of our own stuff goes in there, like say our health data or any other important data about us is going to be moved up there. I think one of the the the, the biggest things that affected like AWS, for instance, was like when everybody was saying, "Hey, there's buckets everywhere. You know, here's all this crazy amount of information." AWS was basically like, "Hey." your buckets are public, here's a notification, right? So I mean like, I don't know, if it's if it's going to be like, I feel like kind of like responsive companies and things like that and just understand, like if, if there's something that's like, I, what I'm trying to get at is essentially that like, uh, if it just like, sorry, I'll come back on that, but I'm trying to figure out a way to phrase this. Look okay. <laughs> at I'm sorry. No, oh, I, think yeah. it, I think it is important that companies kind of do, um, you know, take some initiative in informing their users that their like whatever they have out there is insecure in some way, or open to the public, or what it is, whatever. Yeah, I, what if there should be like, you know, hey, like you're going if you're you're making this bucket bucket public right now, like this bucket is completely visible to everyone. Like, just make sure you know that's really like pushed down, like. You know, alert, here's this, here's what you're doing with this bucket. Like, are you sure you want to do this? And like notifications if something is completely accessible. Because like as as the provider of like buckets and things like that, they I, I feel like they sort of have a responsibility to kind of just push that down, you know? And you could obviously wanna, say, you know, it's it's in documentation and things, but sorry, go ahead. I just wanna point out a term that a lot of people use to describe themselves and we know that it's lame. But full stack developers, if you're going to call yourself a full stack developer, be a goddamn full stack. Like just because you can write CSS, HTML, JavaScript, and PHP and use a little bit of SQL doesn't make you a fucking full stack developer. Like you're or... going to be, <laughs> yeah, well, they are like, not even SQL, right? So like if you're going to go off and you want to be a full stack developer and you want to be in charge of like making the decisions of how code gets pushed and how like you know how things work and like what technologies you use understand the technology that you're using is really important because a lot of people who are like i'm a full stack developer don't know how sql server works to begin with so then when it comes to cloud like when it comes to the cloud like they're like oh yeah we just turn on the sql server and the sql and then we point the orm at it and then it's done it's like that's not that's not done at all people like understand sysadmin, yeah. understand stuff. Like if you are truly a full stack developer, there's so many different levels that you, you should be able to understand. And then the security implications of those should be obvious to you. Um, even if you're not a security person, like that should come through your mind just by looking at it. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of it too is there's so much stuff that's, um, you kind of just works out of the box now. Like when you spin up Docker, like, instances or whatever it be and like the going back to like the mongodb thing it's like you have to have like when it pops up be like hey by the way put some credentials on this 
uh, and just like have like the minimum like minimal configuration because I feel feel like a lot of the stuff that like the low hanging fruit is uh, so much of it is just because nothing ever gets configured. People spin stuff up and just like let it go. Yeah, like the number that. of uh, you guys remember when like Raspberry Pis were being uh, or like the default the default operating system like it was the credentials they had default credentials. Yeah, like I don't pie, know things like that. Pi Raspberry. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, there's yeah. all like the routers that were deployed with the like, hey, it's admin password, admin password. Like, shouldn't like they're, I, I don't know. That's when I say like responsibility of a company, that's the stuff I'm like kind of talking about. It's like this, these mass recognizable things where it's like initially deployed uh, insecurely, you know, no warning, like, hey, you should probably change this. We're not going to force you to change it. Yeah. I mean, and in a different space, you're seeing it with like these giant insane botnets that are able to take over because of hard-coded credentials and this and that yeah well, I, we're at a point where we can scan like we can scan the whole internet in like five minutes ten minutes for a for a set of credentials once a, a device has been reversed and we find like a hard-coded cred yeah. um it's immediately weaponizable like it's just a plug-in to a botnet like wow we got a new platform yeah um, so we need to have this kind of I, I guess people understanding that um, that if you if you upload like uh, an image or if you roll out a new cluster of machines or whatever, and they've got some default service running with a default password, that it will be immediately discovered and exploited like within seconds, minutes. Not you know, maybe if somebody looks at our stuff, they might find this low hanging fruit. No, all low hanging fruit gets immediately exploited, and that's just going to keep getting faster and faster and faster. How much uh, security really compliance uh, do you think we got from, say, WannaCry, as an example? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, as a, like, it's good that security is being brought into the forefront from all these massive fuck-ups. <laughs> oh, there was one thing I wanted to point out. Um, Microsoft Cred Scan, they've got um, a couple of products that, that scan for credentials, like hard-coded SQL connection strings and um, Azure or AWS tokens. Um, they actually scan like within Visual Studio. They got a plugin, a cred scan plugin that finds hard coded credentials and code. And I think they actually check on like GitHub commits as well. They check it in. I don't know how they do it, but uh, they check for for dumb stuff like AWS keys and Azure uh, access keys in GitHub commits. Do you think GitHub should have a responsibility to check the yeah, payments? Yeah, I for... think GitHub, I think we've got way too much uh, centralization around GitHub. I don't know who these people are or where they come from or when everybody decided that everybody must use GitHub now. I don't know when that happened. I wasn't at that meeting. I didn't get the vote on this. So, <laughs> so I don't um... understand why with this central company is, is so part of, of our development. Cycle so we now. actually talked about that. Uh, we talked about something with GitHub, um, how they automatically scan for vulnerabilities, actually, which is a good thing. But um, yeah, like you're totally right about that. Like GitHub is this central. GitHub stars mean something. Like what the fuck is that? You can start companies on that stuff. Same thing with Docker. Like Docker is now just a huge, huge fucking thing. Although I mean, Docker is more proprietary because you need to use their own their own specific um, tooling to actually get it, but yeah, there's a lot of big companies that are putting themselves in a place to be like the leaders of this sort of thing. 
and they still might be falling behind in certain aspects too. So this is really late in the conversation to bring this in, but I, I wanted to bring this up anyway, is that uh, weaponization of um, the like post-exploitation uh, post of uh, cloud environments. Um, so uh, Faith brought up uh, that, you know, you can quickly take cred, scan the internet in 10 minutes. Now, one of the reasons that you can do that is thanks to the clouds, uh, be the cloud being available to um, attackers. So if you look at something like, if you compromise an IAM key of a large company who already has a huge AWS, AWS bill and budget and they don't give a shit, like how many G2, like GPU instances can you spin up and configure with uh, Hashtapus and like distributed Hashcat? Like how many instances can you really spin up before anyone notices? Um, and so like whether you're using it to scan or whether you're using it to crack hashes or whatever, weaponizing it for um, as, as an attacker is, is definitely like uh, something people should take into account as well because yeah you could you know once you once you can turn on boxes how many boxes can you turn on like how much wood it's very true yeah I mean there's a lot of stuff too I mean, especially thinking about about companies that are huge and have giant AWS bills and like what's another thousand dollars on there that might just be a, a spike that so they might just track in you know, something, you know, like New Relic or whatever to like have uh, say, oh, we got a bunch of traffic here, we got a bunch of instances, oh, we must be doing well because we have a bunch more logs or, you know, whatever sort of metric they might use. But yeah, it kind of gets lost in the noise and you have that much stuff that's all in one giant panel. You go into your, you know, check out your EC2 instances, you have like thousands of them, thousands of backups, thousands of data stores, thousands of custom, you know, Lambda stuff, like, so it's just it's it's pretty wild to see how people might be able to slip stuff in there once you do get some admin cred, which aren't that hard to get sometimes. Yeah. But if you talk about one... like underprived, sorry, I'll just quickly, if you talk about like underprived users as well, CloudWatch and um, what's the there's another scaling thing in in AWS. Um, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it automatically deploys EC, EC2 instances from an API into a subnet. But if you ramp, if you intentionally ramp the load on the pre-existing services they'll like become part of that vpc so then if you're if you've compromised something and you've got your code running on it and you want to scale it you can just like you know use uh whatever online quote stress testers to trigger load trigger cloudwatch have those scale automatically for you and then another way to weaponize this cloud type stuff yeah it's just so crazy like how many how many services are running now and like how many or like how many, uh, sorry about that, I just cut out there a little bit, but just uh, how many assets these companies are owning. And like one of the big things you see uh, in like bug bounty and like graduating is like companies don't even know like what sort of assets they own. When we did like a live event, the client was really surprised the vulnerabilities coming in because uh, basically what they were seeing was like, a, they didn't even know they own this asset. They didn't even know they own this like domain and they had no clue what server is running on. So it's just really, it's really interesting to see like the management of these things. Uh, and I guess like kind of one thing I wanted to bring up was like, how comfortable are you guys with like actual, if you've had experience in like an actual corporate like deployment setting where you're working for a company and you're doing like DevOps stuff, like the flow of security, like who does that fall on? You know, like who's, whose responsibility is that? And like, how does that go? I mean, honestly, it's, it's pretty varied. I mean, in different experiences that I've had, I mean, it kind of falls down to the people who are doing the deployments. Um, but I mean, you have things like security policies that can be applied, um, like security groups that can be 
you know, instances can be deployed under and have all those policies of like, you know, how routing is done or what ports are allowed or, you know, what um, roles can be used to access certain instances. But the thing is, is if that automation isn't in place or if people aren't using those templates right, then it, it's difficult to say because, I mean, you can't, you know, it's hard to verify, you know, say you spin up 100 instances, but they all have their own security policy or something got changed and, and nobody knows how to fix it. It's kind of like a lot, you know, to deal with. Um, hey, Death Hand. Hey. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I linked, a, I linked a Twitter post where this guy, there's a security researcher named Six and he found like, you know, a, a service running default credentials, which I'm not too sure what specifically the service is, but it's it's for uh, DevOps and deployment and things like that. And uh, on the panel, there's like a screenshot attached where they're they're deploying these to production with 190 vulnerabilities, 167 vulnerabilities, you know, 35 vulnerabilities. Like this panel is demonstrating, you know, like hey, your code's it, it's got a ton of vulnerabilities in it, and it's just still being pushed to deployment. And like additionally, you know, it's running default credentials. So it's like it's a really interesting thing to see is like how do we better this flow? How do we make people care about security? Because like if you have developers and security guys, it's just like and there's no in between or like where it's like hey, you should develop security minded. I feel like it's just going to kind of fall into this weird sort of loop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Defend, do you have anything to say about this? You were talking about um, auto scaling policies, limits, and things like that. Well, yeah. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, I just wanted to mention like, consider a corporate environment in which they've primarily been using on premises uh, things and, and you know, data, data centers, et cetera. And then somebody catches wind of this cloud thing and they decide to start you know, hiring consultants or, or implement it themselves. So you, you have to consider a company that you know probably has a small IT department or a small DevOps department within their IT department and things. And um, there, I would imagine, are you know huge security implications for a company that one either jumps in and says, yeah, let's just go cloud for these things and you know we'll hook it all together and get, get federated or whatever. And then those people leave and they're left to kind of deal with this enormous growth and manage all of these little services. I mean, just go to your console and look at how much is in, in Amazon and how many free services there are and you know look how many choices can be made that just get that stray or uh, drift, you know, and, and lose, you know, out of sight, out of mind, as I said in chat. And then again, consider the small IT department with an even smaller DevOps department that may or may not work with their engineering department um, to make these decisions. And, and in the end, it, it really falls on them and they're like, Quarterly or month, you know, yearly audits and things, and whether or not those things show up in uh, scans or whatever. Um, that's all I really have to say about that. It's it's about it. It really it falls on on the DevOps or IT team to make these decisions, and if they don't have the right consultants or the right uh, people, um, it can easily get away from them because there's something new every day. Oh, I'm going to implement this and this and this, and um, the engineers are leveraging that that software and uh, infrastructure as a service and code as well. So. I think it's important. Yeah, I, was, I agree. As well. Yeah, like, I, I find it very hard um, to integrate into into CI cloudy kind of development environments where um, they might have like a compliance requirement like PCI or HIPAA or something that says anytime the code gets changed, you must get it tested again for security issues um, and trying to find like a, a balance between how often do we do this testing? Do we do a do we do a full stack pen test once a year or do we do it every single release, every single sprint? Do we run some kind of automated scanner to catch low-hanging fruit? Um, 
every single release or quarterly or how do we do this? And that's that's a real challenge. I don't know who's going to solve that problem, but well, it's I mean it's your it's your QE department, right? They're going and hoping hopefully they have an infrastructure in place. Uh, if you've got enough money to have a whole team that does this, that will honestly handwrite a lot of this stuff and you know say, oh, all right, all of our containers are have these dependencies for these applications and uh, okay, I'm going to go to Getter or check CVEs against the um, the repositories and their dependencies that we're using and make sure. Um, I know you guys have talked about GitHub and all of the wonderful uh, bugs that are hidden in there and all the code um, and people just kind of slap things in their code and say, oh, I just need to import this and it's fine. And so it's, I, I would say it's up to your quality and quality assurance department to do that if you're in a corporate environment. Um, but if you're just a bunch of guys uh, in a room coding stuff, you could probably easily just buy a bunch of stuff that you can't manage. I think this um, comes back to something we've seen plenty of times um, that, you know, Dave Vitell has basically confirmed that the NSA love is um, hunting sysadmins or hunting security teams, hunting whoever has the keys to the castle to um, not just own a box, but now own like the whole cloud environment. Um, and yeah, like, so there's, there's instances of like, uh, with, with includes things like um, Ansible or Puppet or Chef or whatever being included with uh, certain products that do these cloud deployments, whether it be like Conjure Up or like with From Canonical or um, whatever, uh, or Juju or whatever the stupid name is. Um, and then like these are automation tools that aren't meant to be used as a standalone product. So the person running them may not know that, you know, that Ansible Puppet Chef is available um, and has access to this like repository of, of private keys or whatever and then, or however, you know, whatever one we're talking about. And then all of a sudden, um, an attacker's like, oh, look, there's Ansible on this box. Like, oh, well, I'll just use that. Like, oh, now I've got these other boxes, sweet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah especially because those things are like configured to have private key access directly, no password or anything. And well-documented and well, and, and widely used. Yeah, so like um, for OpenStack, for example, uh, OpenStack will contain, I think, like Puppet and Ansible, but, um, it's not like there's no you're not supposed to run it directly but you can like there's nothing stopping you so from an attacker's point of like from a, a sysadmin's point of view that's managing this cloud they're like never going to run it directly but like attacker types like ansible fucking dash i ip address comma lol i think you had said i had said a really good point earlier about the inc increased surface area you know if you're just some person at home with a, a home lab and you're you know walking around with things and you you know host a website or whatever you know maybe maybe you're not open to to so much but you know these corporate environments create so many layers of complexity especially when they go to the cloud that you know the more you add in there that and and more you add in there that you don't touch with your hands literally uh the, the surface area increases exponentially. We've definitely talked a lot about uh, the negative sides of the cloud, but I think like things like DDoS mitigation and um, like, you know, someone told me the other day that they're going to DDoS me. I was like, okay, I'll believe you after you DDoS my website, which is an S3 bucket. And it's like, <laughs> where are you going to go? Yeah, static hosting. Yeah. yeah, it's like, go, go DDoS my, my S3 bucket and watch how much I care. Like, and the flexibility, right? I'm getting DDoS. I okay. I'm just gonna go automatically switch all this stuff right now instead of uh, we're down for 12 hours. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the cloud offers um, more flexible, quick changes. You, know, yeah, you just hit the Cloudflare button, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs>
I do like yeah. that. Yeah. We get a lot of interesting topics out of this here, um, especially a lot of different tools people can use. So if people are interested in learning more about this stuff, I'm going to post the show notes very quickly um, with all of our repos that we've posted. And if anybody, we had a couple people that wanted to come on. Um, unfortunately, they couldn't make it. We had um, a really cool one, actually, um, about um, making some WAFs in Cloudflare, having it be automatic and stuff. But maybe we can have that person come on again next week or something. But yeah, if anybody has more interesting things to talk about or any ways that they want to, or any ways that they implement these sort of policies and things that we um, have been discussing, um, feel free to hit us up on Twitter. Um, or DMS or whatever, because we want to hear more of this kind of stuff. We need to get it out there to people who are like, you know, us, people like you guys that are, you know, getting into this stuff. They might, you know, it's, it's a vast, vast jungle. And I think that it's something that, you know, the more information that we can share about this, especially between people who, you know, are all kind of on the same level, um, the better off we're all going to be. Um, but yeah, it's getting kind of late, so I think we should maybe wrap it up tonight. Does anybody have any last words about the cloud? Yeah, actually, I want to kind of throw in a little bit on what you guys were talking about there, especially with the diverse interest group. Uh, something, a pattern I've noticed is that you know, with the whole DevOps movement and the talent that has started to come in post-DevOps, these are all very engineering and development-oriented uh, people they tend to lack a lot of the traditional sysadmin skills, network understanding. So a lot of these small shops, and I've seen this in many instances, maybe they've got everything up in AWS or something like that. It's entirely DevOps run. And they, they completely miss a lot of the things that you mentioned, like maybe something's not patched, um, et cetera. But they don't consider all the opportunities for lateral movement. So maybe you've got, one machine that's fucked up, but everything's really secure. Uh, oh, wait, no, they're all on a flat network. You can pivot around like crazy, but nobody's starting to think about that anymore. Uh, shared SSH keys, lots of things that open up lateral movement, I think would be worth discussing so that people can truly understand all the different ways in which they can get fucked. Maybe we should uh, have um, not Dan help us set up some vulnerable stuff and just on some episode, just do a live hack on air or something to show what can happen. Because especially with things like like the AWS um, private keys, like when you get your yes. first initial PEMS file, like if you put that somewhere wrong and you have, yeah, as you said, a flat network that you can SSH into other stuff in, or it might even have in SSH config a bunch of other hosts in there, having all that yeah. together, your environment gets opened up and one single key is the yep. key to the whole thing, the whole shebang. And so yeah, exactly. it's it's pretty wild. I mean, you start off with like, because people write these things so that they can talk to the other servers and they, they need to be key-based, which is awesome. But then with people being lazy about that stuff or people not realizing that shared SSH keys, you know, or SSH keys that might even work for more than one box are a bad thing. Um, it's, yeah, it's something that definitely um, yep. is fun. And another common technique is just wrapping a singular VPN around that flat network as if that's just going to lock down all like the telnet ports that are open. Yeah, until one of those machines get, gets compromised and then you're completely in that whole network and people don't really, at least from the DevOps background, seem to understand 
quite what that means, what lateral movement even really is from a DevOps background. Yeah, or pivoting into another network as well. Like you're, you might be able to pivot directly from one box into another subnet. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. There's definitely some confusion around the term DevSecOps as well. Like yes. people want to smash all this shit together. So when we say DevSecOps, are we talking about, you know, people might, one one person could say, well, we're talking about automating of security, like security automation. And another person could say that we're integrating security into our DevOps. So, we, you know, nobody really knows. These are just buzzwords, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I say it's a mixture of both. but Agile, it's, agile. <laughs> it's just a little too vague, though, for the same time for it to be in proper use. I mean, I think that definitely that movement, that whole idea of it is definitely awesome. And I think that it just needs a little bit more time to be able to put out the best practices for this kind of stuff. But that stuff is going to be led by conversations like we're having right now where people, a bunch of people who know about how to break into shit on the legacy side, I guess, learning and saying, oh, wait, this is like opening up like, a, like an old problem I thought was fixed a long time ago, like 10 years ago. Um, so having those kind of conversations is definitely awesome. And I think we should have more of them. Yeah, in the end, I think we just need to push forward like the idea that people need to change how they think about security, like not as an afterthought, like be more proactive about shit. Hell yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for joining the conversation. Um, if you guys want to hit us up on Twitter, you totally can. If you have any projects to share, um, still to figure out next week's theme, but we'll be here. So until then. I just wanna throw in anybody who is working on private cloud stuff at their business. If you're running private clouds, definitely go and think about auditing your private cloud software and contribute to the open source stuff. And then you too can be an old man who shakes your fist at the cloud. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody. Um, yeah, it is up on Twitter. Subscribe for life. Subscribe for life. Later.